your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. All right, today we're talking about the collective unconscious, which is a theory put forward by uh, psychologist uh, Carl Jung, who uh, famously uh, was uh, an, uh, uh, somebody who worked underneath uh, Freud, Sigmund Freud, and then he moved on into his own theories. You know, sometimes referred to as the objective psyche, the collective unconscious really refers to the idea that a, a part of our deepest unconscious mind is genetically inherited and not shaped by our personal experience. And the notion was originally defined by Carl Jung. And according to his teachings, the collective unconscious is a common to all human beings. It's kind of like the soul. It's where it's all connected to all other souls. It's kind of that idea. He also believed that the collective unconscious is responsible for a number of deep-seated beliefs and instincts, such as spirituality, sexual behavior, life and death instincts, and the unconscious mind. Uh, this was back in 1875 when these theories came forward, is responsible for, you know, developing the concept of the collective unconscious along with the introverted and the extroverted personalities. And so this is a personality theory of how our person, how who we are, our character is shaped by our unconscious mind. And he worked with Sigmund Freud, you know, who was another psychologist during that time. And in his early studies, Jung, uh, his work affirmed many of Freud's ideas, but as time went on, they basically split the split off and their principles of psychology became a little bit different, but a lot of it, the content even though it was approached differently, was about the unconscious mind. The biggest difference between uh, the unconscious mind that Freud believed and the product of personal experiences, while Jung believed that the unconscious was inherited from a past collective experience of humanity. And according to Jung, the collective unconscious is made up of a collection of knowledge and also a collection of imagery that every person is born with and is shared by all human beings due to our ancestral experiences. And though humans may not know what thoughts and images are in their collective unconscious, it is thought that in moments of crisis, the psyche can tap into that. And understanding the beliefs of the collective unconscious also requires understanding of the concepts surrounding these beliefs. Now, Jung believed that the collective unconscious is expressed through the universal archetypes. And these archetypes are signs, symbols, patterns of thinking, and behaving that are inherited from our ancestors. And according to Jung, these mythological uh, 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 images or cultural symbols are not static or fixed. Instead, a lot of different archetypes may overlap over a combined period of time. And some common architects that Jung proposed for explaining the unconscious mind includes what's called the anima. Now, the anima is symbolized by an idealist woman who compels man to engage in feminine behaviors. 
Now, the animus is a woman's source of meaning and power that both creates animosity toward man, but also increases self-knowledge. Also, there is a hero, which is starting with a humble birth, then overcoming evil and death. And then there's the persona, which is the mask we use to conceal our inner selves to the outside world. So that would be the ego from Freud's perspective. Also, the self, the whole personality, the core of the total psyche. And then the shadow. And this is really interesting. The person's immoral and dark aspects that follow them everywhere they go. Then there is the trickster, which is the child seeking self-gratification, sometimes being cruel and unfeeling in the process. And then there's the wise old man, which is the self uh, as a figure of wisdom and knowledge. For example, wizards revered teachers frequently appear in the media and marketing messages to reflect this archetype. So people that show great wisdom are people that have applied knowledge, which is life experience combined with the knowledge that they gained in their younger years and as they evolve. Young really was convinced that the similarity and the universality of world religions pointed to religion as a manifestation of the collective unconscious. It's our human pathways to tap into our soul, to tap into how we all relate. Now, unlike Young, what I would put forward is the idea that there's two basic elements of a human being that we all need to tap into in our life if we're going to get to our unconscious. Number one is the willingness and the consequential thinking to do what's right. And the other part of us that taps into our soul is to have compassion for others' pain, to suffer for other people. That is a true act of love, to do what's right and to connect to other people's pain. Where people are feeling the most pain, if you can understand that, you are seeing them for who they are in their weakest moments and you have an opportunity to offer compassion for that pain, which gives you the ability to connect. And that is where our souls intertwine. That's how we operate. And if we can consciously put that as our operating system to actually do what's right for others, for us, for God, for our marital spouse, for our children, if we can put ourselves behind doing what's right and behind the idea of suffering for another person's pain, now we're getting into what our soul is here to do on this earth. Dreams were thought to provide key insights into our unconscious. Basically, what dreams are in the REM stage of sleep is our brain is reprocessing emotions that were not emoted but repressed in the previous day. And so what happens is the brain will concoct a dream which will elicit those emotions that were repressed in order for our brain to process those emotions out so that we can be refreshed the next day. So our dreams have a lot to do with our repressed thoughts rather than our conscious thoughts. They have to do with our fears, with our emotions that never get expressed. And if you're a passive aggressive person, you probably dream quite a bit because your brain has to move that content out of it as quickly as it can so that it does not influence how you operate. 
you know, but they provide key insight, not into our conscious mind, but into our subconscious mind. And the content and the emotions elicited during those dreams says a lot about what is sitting back behind us, what our human potential really is. Now, Jung believed that dreams are highly personal and that dream interpretation requires knowing a great deal about the individual. Freud often suggested that specific symbols represent specific unconscious thoughts. I would subscribe that that Jung had a better perspective on dreams because dreams are very individualized based on repressed emotion. More than just being repressed wishes, Jung actually felt that dreams compensate for parts of the psyche that are underdeveloped in our waking lives. And this is allowed for the study of dreams as an instrument for research, diagnosis, treatment for psychological conditions, and even phobias. See, the dreams bring forward what our mind is afraid to process. You know, historically, there's been some debate about whether the collective unconscious requires a literal or symbolic interpretation. And also in symbolic interpretation of the collective of unconscious is thought to have some scientific grounding because the belief that all humans share certain behavioral dispositions is there. Also, you know, we have to understand that this uh, gut Uh, This thing called a gut microbiome may play a role in how the unconscious regulates behavior. So that gut microbiome uh, can be part of the future of psychiatric research because it is an understanding that the gut-brain axis, the gut, your stomach, and the brain have two-way communication between themselves, the central nervous system and the digestive system. And there's a lot of research that suggests that the gut-brain axis, with a special focus on the health of the gut microbiome, can influence things like inflammation, disease, and even mental health. And so when talking about the gun-brain axis, you might not realize that all parts of our body are involved in the process of internal communication. And so there's areas of our body that are involved. The digestive system affects our mental health. Our brain affects our mental health. Our nervous system affects our mental health and the immune system. The other part that I would suggest affects our mental health is our mind-brain connection. And that is the soul and what its purpose is here to do, which tells us to do what's right instead of what we selfishly like to do. And then there is our brain, which is our human filter that brings us into this earth as human beings. And it filters all of the soul's desires into what humans want to happen. And so our instincts play also a huge role and usually are a lot of what drives us in our selfish desires to get things done. Now, in the microbiome idea, our digestive system specific to the gut-brain axis is referring to the entire gastronomical tract. And this means from our mouth, through the stomach, through the intestines, to the anus. And it is a complex system with unique features that help us break down the food we eat to digest them properly, which can mean the absorbing of the nutrients as well as helping us eliminate waste. So the microbiome refers to the world of our gut health and the bacteria, both good and bad, that live in our gut. 
and is made up of an estimated 39 trillion microbial cells, including bacteria, viruses, and fungi. That all affects how we think and how clear we think. And a large part of a microbiome is located within the intestinal tract, and it consists of microorganisms, mainly bacteria. And the gut bacteria influences a lot of aspects of our body's functioning, like our metabolism, our weight, our immune system, even our mood. And when things are off balance within our gut microbiome, it can result in inflammation and disease, as well as dysregulation of our mood by disrupting our neurochemistry. Also, the brain. The brain is our human filter, and it may seem obvious that the brain will be a primary component of the gut-brain axis. However, it's important to note that the neurotransmitters, chemicals that allow neurons to communicate with each other, are of particular importance when looking at the relationship between the gut and the brain. So the brain receives signals from the gut and then correlates it into what the mind must do with that. Neurotransmitters also synthesize brain influence. Things like our fight and flight responses, our mood, or gut health has been linked to a variety of mental health around fight or flight. Because when you're sick, you're not able to defend yourself. When you're feeling ill, you are susceptible to stress, anxiety, and depression because you are vulnerable. These are important aspects. Also, your nervous system is broken down with Young's theory, and it can be considered the body's command center. It's within the nervous system that communication through our body takes place, guiding our muscles and our organs to function. So if our nervous system is a mess, our body movements, our concentration, our ability to function, all are impacted, and our ability to actually function is impacted. You know, our central nervous system is the brain and the spinal cord, and information is carried through the body via electrical signals between the neurons responsible for receiving and the process of responding to our sensory information. And so it is very important that we break down and understand that our gut also plays a huge role. You are what you eat in how we think. You know, it is very important to have uh, an, an understanding that some of the unhealthy, disruptive foods that we eat are carbohydrates, sugar, artificial sweeteners, high fructose corn syrup, fruits high in sugar, red meat, uh, fried foods, and, and uh, also antibiotics are a culprit of disruption to a healthy gut. Uh, because they're sometimes necessary to help us fight illness and infections, but they often kill gut bacteria, including the good bacteria we need for a healthy gut. So, you know, if you want to have a healthy lifestyle, which goes along with having a good understanding of our collective unconscious, we're never going to tap into it if we're always disrupted, is if you're going to be a, a dormant person that lacks physical activity, if you're going to be a smoker, if you're going to be uh, an adequate sleep, you're going to affect your ability to function and actually tap into the desire to do what's right and the desire to actually have compassion for suffering. It is also very, very important that we understand if we're going to be in touch with our collective unconscious, we have to understand the concept of peace. And what is peace? Peace is the ability to accept the unacceptable. That means we begin with what we cannot accept and we begin to build from there. 
once you have peace, now you have a means to an outcome. Before you have peace, all you have is coping. And so we, as a human, have to tap into our collective unconscious and make it peaceful instead of having narratives and catastrophization. We want to have peace by accepting the unacceptable and working with that. For young, our primitive past becomes the basis of human psyche, and it directs and influences our present behavior. And once again, our primitive past is a part of it, but also our diet and our gut is the other part of it. And Jung uh, uh, said that there were archetypes, the self, the persona, the shadow, and the anima, the animus. Now, the persona is the outward face we present to the world, and it conceals our real self. And it's called the conformity archetype. It is where our social part of ourself becomes the part of ourself we put our most energy into, into how we present to other people. It is that public face. It is that role that someone uh, different in our life sees us as. However, our persona is not all of who we are, and we have to understand that. And that's why people are often so surprised by negative behaviors that people have in their life because they don't understand. The only thing they see is what the persona will allow us to see. The shadow is all the horrible things that we think and do that nobody sees on our radar. And we are all, that is all a part of who we are. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about the persona and how it affects us. But we're also going to talk about the shadow and the other archetypes that Jung laid out in all of his theory. So come back. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Dr. Connie Mariano is a groundbreaker. She was the White House physician to three presidents, toured the world on Air Force One, and has had countless amazing experiences. The one thing that life didn't prepare her for was becoming a widow. After losing her beloved husband, John, in a tragic accident, Dr. Connie joined the one million women who were widowed in the United States each year. While her journey as a widow has been one of intense grief and sorrow, it has also been one of extraordinary growth and rebirth. Now, Dr. Connie is sharing what she's learned, joined by her knowledgeable guests to help anyone struggling with this deeply personal and often lonely journey of their own. Tune into The Widow's Walk, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about the collective unconscious, Carl Jung. You know, the persona is an archetype, and that is our ego that uh, uh, Freud would refer to, which is a much more familiar term. But it's basically our social adaptation, our personal uh, presentation of who we want people to believe that we are. And it originates from the Greek word of the masks of ancient actors usually, you know, that use, and they symbolize roles we, that we played in public. And you could think of a persona as a public relations representative, much like what we have uh, with the spokesperson at the White House for this crazy old man that we call president, uh, Mr. Biden. You know, a, a, a well-adapted persona can greatly contribute to our social uh, success as it mirrors our true personality tra uh, traits, adapts to different social contexts, but it's basically a broad overview of who we are rather than a very contextual, a very specific look at who we really are. And problems arise when we uh, overly identify with our persona because our persona is only a reflection of who we are. It's not necessarily who we are. So as our human being, as who we are comes forward, the more other parts of us, the shadow parts of us, the anima, the animus, when those things, which we're going to talk about here in a second, when those things come forward, all of a sudden you have to take another look at that person because they're more complex than you originally thought. You know, example would be a teacher who continuously treats everyone as if they are their students or someone who is overly authoritative outside of their work environment, like a cop you know, who treats their children as if they are uh, the suspects or the criminals. You know, the persona is shaped during childhood and it's driven by the need to conform to the expectations of your parents, of your teachers, of your peers. And this usually results in it, the persona encompassing more socially acceptable traits, while the less desirable ones become part of the shadow another essential part of the personality theory that Jung put forward. And another uh, archetype that we talked about earlier is the anima and the animus. And that is the mirror image of our biological sex that is unconscious feminine side in males and the masculine tendencies in women. And each sex manifests the attitudes and behaviors of the other by virtue of centuries of living together. So men, there exists an anima, a feminine inner personality for women and animus, which is a masculine inner personality. And these archetypes are derived both from collective ideas of femininity and masculinity from individual experiences with the opposite sex beginning with the person's parents. So the anima and animus exist in the unconscious as counterbalances to a person's conscious sexual identity. And it serves to complement their experience and understanding standing of their own gender. What's interesting is today, now that women are shifting into the front and center part of our existence rather than the men who are now taking the back seat, men are becoming much more effeminate. As a matter of fact, if you just stare at a commercial on TV for maybe one minute, you're going to see a bunch of effeminate men. And that is because men are being redefined by women. So now the anima 
is becoming front and center for men in society as the animus, the women, are becoming more of the men in society and driving forward what we are supposed to accept and not accept who we are, what our conscious, what our what are our decisions should be, what our politics should be, what our human experience should be. All of that is now being defined from a much more feminine perspective. And so that part of who we are is coming forward in men. And like the shadow, the anima and animus are often first encountered through projection. For example, the phenomenon of love at first sight can be explained as man projecting his anima into a woman and vice versa, which leads to an immediate intense attraction. So that means that a woman has a masculine feature that the man is looking for, and the man has a feminine feature that the woman is looking for within herself. And so once that happens, there's a match that lights up of attraction between the two. And Jung acknowledged the masculine traits like autonomy, separateness, aggression, and feminine traits like nurturance, relatedness, and empathy we're not confined to one gender or superior to the other. We all have both components. Instead, he saw them as part of a holistic psychological spectrum in every individual. And we are all made up of different ingredients of the anima and animus to represent our otherness. Now, some people want to be all anima, so they're a man thinking they're supposed to be a woman, and some people want to be all animus, which is a woman thinking she's supposed to be a man. And of course, now we have medications that can all create those likeness in our physical uh, well-being. So engaging with these complexes can enrich an individual's understanding of gender and self, much like we've seen in the historically throughout all of culture where men love to dress up as women and women love to dress up as men and none the two shall meet. I mean, that we just love to have all these components as a part of who we are. We just manifest them physically sometimes because that's what people have the desire to do. But it is in there in every single human being, though some people may repress their anima and some people may repress their animus, depending on the social circumstances of their persona. Yes, now the shadow archetype was defined by Jung, and it encapsulates a part of ourselves that we may reject as own, simply don't recognize. And it's rooted in both our personal and collective unconscious. So the shadow can change traits that we consciously oppose, often contrasting with those presented in our persona. What's happening nowadays is people love to feel like it is dishonest to repress these features. So having a shadow is not something that people want to have. They want to embrace all of their embarrassments. They like to, embar to, to embrace all of the things that they repress and make those a part of who they are in truth. Unfortunately, they invest so much in the idea of exposing these other parts of themselves that it becomes who they are rather than the part of who they are that they were repressing. So they just bring it forward and other people go, oh, I have part of that in me too. Oh yeah, I have part of that in me too. And all of a sudden everybody is making a big deal and a persona out of this repressed parts of themselves that are being acknowledged. And they make that as though that's who I am now. It's unfortunate, but we love to blow smoke straight up our own ass. You know, the animal side of our personality 
you know, uh, like the id and Freud, it, it's a source of both our creative and destructive energies. And the reason it's destructive is because if you have no self-will, if you have no boundaries, if you have no ability to regulate yourself, your id, your an, your your uh, uh, poor, the animal side of your personality will take over. But if you are able to regulate the animal part of yourself, you can become very creative and break a lot of barriers. Unfortunately, the animal part of ourself enjoys violating other people's boundaries. And so we have to understand that if we want to socialize and have relationships, we have to manage our anima, our animal part of ourself, and try to regulate it enough to where we can be free and and fun and different and creative but not overbearing and enforcing our animal side of ourselves on each other however people that like to do drugs and alcohol and other things like pain control you know uh painkillers uh don't have any control of the animal part of themselves you know, the shadow isn't merely negative. It provides depth and balance to our personality. It reflects the principle that every aspect of your personality has a compensatory counterpart. And so the shadow uh, manifests when we project the dislike traits onto others. So the people that are having affairs are usually the one accusing other people of having an affairs because that part of themselves is in full operation in their brain or in their physical existence, one or the other. But we love to project our shadow onto other people. That means the things that we think about ourselves, the things that we hate about ourselves, like people that are whatever, living a lifestyle that we don't agree with. We have a tendency to project our hatred onto that because it's actually representing a part of who we are. So the more energy you give things from a hatred perspective, the more energy you give things that you don't agree with, the more you're understanding that that's also a part of yourself. And that is what the shadow is. And this process can involve recognizing and integrating dark elements into our conscious self and aids in fostering well-rounded personality. We all have to understand that there are shadow parts of ourselves that we hate being revealed. But once you have the courage to face your shadow, your shadow does not destroy your life. You know, this interplay of the persona and the shadow is often explored in literature. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, the picture of Dorian Gray, where characters grapple with their dual natures and further illustrating the compelling nature of this aspect of Jung's theory. You know, things like people having affairs, people having a secret life, which lots of people do on social media. They love to personify themselves one way. But if you pull the curtain back, holy crap, no wonder Wicked is such a powerful uh, uh, and the Wizard of Oz are such powerful stories in our life. Because we are all living it every time that we get on social media, you pull the curtain back and holy crap, look at what you got. You know, finally, there's a self which provides a sense of unity and experience. For young, the ultimate aim of our individual is to achieve a state of selfhood. That's called self-actualization. And... Uh, like Erickson, Eric Erickson, who did developmental studies, Jung is moving to the direction of more humanist orientation. That is, you know, believes, uh, uh, he believed that our undiscovered self is the part of us that we are always searching to find. And that would be your passion. 
your purpose in life, what brings you gratification. So what is a purpose in life? A purpose is it's not about you. It's about what you have done hard in your life and learned to help other people, to apply to other people's life. It's the hard things that you took the time to learn that people seek you out for because you took the time to learn it and deliver in that way that helps other people. And modern Western civilization, uh, uh, people are discouraged from living in their feminine side if you're a man, and women are expressing masculine tendencies and are discouraged from that. However, it's not the case these days in our what's called our woke, crazy-ass culture where people have to do fair every day, even though fair is a place where they judge pigs. It's irrelevant. What's fair for one person is not fair for another. But in the woke culture, everything's got to be fair. So we're going to be crazy for the next gazillion years trying to figure out how to be fair, even though there's no way to. And communism will eventually come forward because this generation is learning that fair is the most important thing in life. Unfortunately, fair is what teaches us in life and helps us evolve by understanding that things are not fair. You know, Thinking versus feeling. These are cognitive functions that are primarily developed to understanding our introvert and our extrovert. Now, what is character? Character is the ability to make decisions. What do you want for dinner? I don't know. What do you want? Well, that means you have no character. So the person you're asking, since you deflected the question, has to have character because you have none. So character teaches people how to love you. Unfortunately, most people don't have good character. They are indecisive because they're afraid of conflict. I can't stand conflict. You know, conflict. Oh, you, know. you know, wimpy ass people live life with no character. And so if you want to be a person that teaches people how to love you, make decisions and profess those decisions so people understand where to meet you and what you stand for so they know how to interact with you. So if you're a religious person and somebody's not saying that you're religious, gives them context to understand how to have a bridge of a relationship with you or vice versa. You know, God forbid we all have different perspectives. You know, the dichotomy about how people make decisions is thinking versus feeling. And what we have to understand with these personal archetypes, these psychological types that, that Carl Jung came up with, is a thinking person is more analytical. A feeling person is more uh, feeling-based, emotion-based. So that means the motivator for a thinking person is going to be an idea. The motivator for a feeling person is going to be, how do I feel about the idea? So what we have to understand if we're going to meet in the middle with a thinking feeling and a thinking person and a feeling person is go, what does this decision mean to you? Well, to me, what this means is we might go into debt because we're having to spend money on this vacation to the other person is, you know, it really would mean a lot to go visit my friends and go down this, you know, see these wonderful things that make some memories so that we have things to talk about in our future. So people look at things differently. We have to understand that a thinking person and a feeling person have two different meanings. If they want to have compromise, they have to discuss meaning, which is how you resolve conflict, which is called diplomacy. Understanding what one idea means to one person and another idea means to another. That means we're different. Wow. What a concept. You know, thinking individuals make decisions based on logic and objective considerations, while feeling people make decisions based on subjective and uh, personal values. So what it comes down to is context 
and content. Most arguments are about how a person is looking at a thought, looking at an idea, looking at a person, what kind of body language they're using, what kind of inflections are in their dialogue. People can give a rat's ass about what they the content is, which is, do we go to uh, the basketball game? What they really care about is what... Well, well, you look like you don't want to go. Well, you look like you really want to go. You know, oh my gosh, now we're going to argue about context. That's what people love to argue about because they love to think they can read everybody's mind based on their nonverbals and their verbals. Uh, you know, controlling people, uh, narcissists and, and crazy people love to, to create context out of every single thing they see, feel, hear, think, smell. They love to create context and argue about context as if they are the only God of the universe and correct about everything in this life. Why don't you get back to content and you may actually solve something? You know, sensing versus intuition. The dichotomy uh, concerns how people perceive and gather information. And so sensing people focus on present realities, tangible facts and details and narratives. And, 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 and what happens is with sensing people, they believe that they have all the right answers within their senses. Also, intuitive people, they are more practical and literal thinkers. You know, they focus on possibilities, interconnections, future potential. So they're often abstract and theoretical thinkers. So they're faith-based. So intuitive people will take a leap of faith whereas a sensing person is going to find 50,000 reasons not to do something. So sensible pe sensing people, they are usually depressed because everything has to be talked out of rather than the intuitive, which is always thinking about what the possibilities might be. Intuitives are a hell of a lot more fun than the sensing people. Sensing people are like a funnel that narrows itself down to only the most pragmatic ways to move forward. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come right back and talk more about the collective unconscious. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Stuck in a state of being that holds us back from creating the life we truly desire. Regardless of your own blocks or limitations, imagine an easier way to get unstuck and move forward with your life. On this show, Jason Hopkins shares his practical next right step approach that will move you toward the life you really want. You too can be steps from getting the abundance, love, support, and fulfillment your heart desires. Get unstuck. Move forward with your life with Jason Hopkins. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. 
If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking about extroversion and introversion as a part of the cognitive thought process involving Carl Jung's theory of the collective unconscious. You know, extroverts are very interesting. They're oriented towards the outer world. They tend to be more outgoing, more sociable. They derive energy from interaction with other people and the external environment. So they see themselves through how other people see them. Now, what's interesting is uh, a midlife crisis is when you realize that nobody ever thinks about you whatsoever. You're basically, your value is very little. Of course, you have everything. You have cars and the wonderful job and you support the world, support your kids. Everybody looks good. Everybody's got their fashion stuff and you got the relatives over for Christmas and all that wonderful stuff. And you're able to show what a great adult you are. But as you realize at about 40, nobody gives a rat's ass who you are. They don't spend a lot of time thinking about you. You're not nearly as important as you think you are, and that's called a midlife crisis. So extroverts tend to crash and burn, realizing that people do not make them out to be that important. The other thing about extroverts is they tend to lose their integrity because they tend to do stupid crap that eventually self-destructs their shadow tends to not be in line with who they present themselves to be as everybody sees them in the world. Oh, they're the most wonderful person, the most optimistic person. They're great. And then you go to the hospital. Oh, they didn't show up. Oh, my gosh. They don't love me. Oh, they're not that great a person after all because they don't have great follow through. And if they do, it's about them. It's always about them. And when they realize the world is not about them, they crash and burn and their integrity goes down the tubes because they will have done lots of things to self-validate. Now, introverts are also self-destructive because they're about their inner world. They tend to be quiet and reserved. They like to be alone. They like to be reflective. They like their inner feelings, their ideas, and their experiences, but they take them all very personally. Everything is about them and their little world and how they connect with their little world and they love their little world because their little world gives them energy and protects them from everybody out there in the world. And nobody really knows who they are because behind the lines, as they come home, they just shut up and, and uh, uh, isolate. And so basically, they're not connected to a whole lot of people. But when they are, they like the one-on-one -on -one experience rather than the party. So these people also have a shadow of a secret life because they have all these repressed desires that they don't express. And so they try to find ways to express those things, whether it's through video games, movies, pornography, whatever. Extroverts like all that stuff, too. But but the deal is, is that the introverts tend to obsess and have a much deeper, more secretive life to themselves. So this all contributes to our ego, our persona and our shadow and our anima and our animus. And so all of these things come together. For both the extrovert and the introvert, because the extrovert's going to express these archetypes uh, outwardly, and the introvert is going to express them inwardly. And so the context is everyone has a dominant function and tends to predominate in their personality and their behavior. 
Are you possibly an introvert and an extrovert? Yes, we have all kinds of shades of introvert and extrovert in us as human beings. We're not all one or the other, but there's a thing called the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And it's a personality inventory. And you can take that and it can pretty much target down what kind of personality you have, what kind of people you match up with, and what kind of people you don't watch up, match up with, who to marry, who not to marry. You know, Young proposed that the goal of a person's psychological development is individuation, which is a process of, of becoming aware of yourself, integrating different aspects of your personality, and realizing our inherent potential. It also involves integrating the conscious and the unconscious parts of our mind and reconciling our inner contradictions so that we have integrity. Integrity is the thing that if you want to be an old person living in a nursing home by yourself with Nurse Ratchet wiping your ass, that would be what you would end up with if you don't manage your integrity. That means somebody, nobody's gonna show up because you never managed it. You had no, no value in other people. It was always all about you. If you do manage your integrity, you're going to self-actuate. You're going to try to self-actuate because you're going to help other people's lives through your own talents, your own wisdom, your own concerns, your own caring, and actually being a real person that people know what they get when they get you. Unfortunately, people live in their, their secrets and in their shadows quite often, and their shadow catches up with them and defines who they really are. You know, so the individual strives to integrate various aspects of our psyche. This includes reconciling and integrating opposites within ourselves, such as the conscious and the unconscious mind, as well as different aspects of the personality, such as your persona, the mask that we wear to the world, and the shadow, which is the less desirable aspects of ourselves. So the concept also involves acknowledging and integrating the anima, the conscious, unconscious feminine aspect in men, and the animus, the unconscious masculine aspect in women. And incorporating the wisdom of both of those archetypes is critical to how we all connect with each other as men and women and as people. If you feel like you have to bend your persona, your anima, and your animus to match up more by overcompensating with a woman by being more feminine or overcompensating with a man by being more masculine, this is how we regulate to try to be social with each other. And it's natural and it's normal. However, if you call it your lifestyle, now you got a problem because you're locking yourself into a very limited perspective as who you are as an individual. So in practical terms, the process of individuation involves self-reflection, dream analysis, exploration of personal symbols, themes, conscious engagement with unconscious parts of the self. This is all what Carl Jung put forward for us. You know, also, Jung did a lot of work on the libido, which is the understanding of, uh, was also a part what Freud uh, largely defined as libido as sexual energy, considered as a primary motivator as human behavior. But Jung diverged from the interpretation, broadening the definition of it, and he saw the libido not merely as sexual energy, but as generalized life force and psychic energy. So according to his theory, this energy is not the driver behind our sexual desires, but also fuels our spiritual, intellectual, and creative pursuits. It encapsulates the energy of life, incorporating all of our drives and motivations. 
In his thoughts of psychology, Young, the libido is an important component of individuation. It's a process of integrating the conscious with the unconscious while still maintaining your individuality. And this process is key to overall psychological development and mental health of an individual. And the libido is the motivating psychic energy that plays a central role in it. When it comes to conflict and pleasure-seeking, this part of us, the libido, is the balance. And it deals with how to balance out our conflicts by using our sexual energy as a part of influencing our communication and, and, and uh, connection with other people. And the energy is directed towards areas of conflict to facilitate growth. So some people will take a feminine approach. Some people will take a masculine approach to facilitate growth. Some people will take more understanding. Some people will take more of character of making decisions and saying, hey, I like this. I don't like this. So this facilitates growth because people have to adapt. The development and the adaptation reduces internal tension and dissatisfaction. You know, psychic energy, libido, also drives us towards seeking pleasure and fulfillment, which are really huge parts of self-realization and growth. And this can be seen in our desires of creativity, intellectual stimulation, spiritual experiences, among other things. And it encompasses a more holistic understanding of our motivational dynamics. And, you know, Jung was also very progressive because he was an early supporter uh, of Freud because of their shared interest in the unconscious. So, you know, looking at how we look at our human motivations as far as libido is concerned, Freud developed the theory of psychosexual stages, which was the oral stage first, the anal stage second, the phallic stage next, the latency, and the genital, uh, which asserted that early childhood and sexual experiences develop our adult personality. Yes, you form your sexual experience with the world in your childhood, and those memories, those impressions will stay with you your whole life. Some will be dormant. Some will not be. Some will play a role in your sexuality. Some won't but they're all there and they're able to be tapped into. And we need to understand that that becomes a part of our psyche. There's also uh, Jung uh, saw religion and spirituality as a huge component of our experiences. And he associated with the process of expressing our uh, collective unconscious through our spirit. And our spirit is our will, our desire, our ability to do things that are hard in this life because that's what it's going to take for us to accomplish and survive. Now, people in this day and age, because we are so safe and because we hide behind every single thing we can hide behind in this life, and we are such a bunch of false selves and lack such a, any kind of real character nowadays that we all just slip and slide like a bunch of snakes, Unfortunately, we don't have what it takes to actually understand that we as people have to define ourselves and uh, we have to make decisions. And what that does is it allow us to teach us how to interact with each other. But from a religious and a spiritual perspective, we also have to understand that even the most heinous people have good in them. And we need to connect with that. And even the most heinous people have right in them. That doesn't mean they're all right, but we can connect with what we agree with. And doing that allows us all to have some grounds of connection with each other. 
you know, and, and what's important is we have Socratic dialogue, meaning that we, all of us come at problems differently. Can't we just hear each other? Do we have to all box each other out and tell each other how stupid we are like we do in our media? It is the easiest possible thing to do to pick each other apart. What wisdom comes from is actually expressing wisdom, which means hearing the other people's perspective. You know, there's basic functions that that Jung identified with thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuiting, which is a cross uh, uh, thing which creates a personality. And, and so we have to understand that Jung's assumptions with his psycholo- psychology that he came up with was that he agreed with Freud that at uh, Freud that a person's past and childhood experiences determine your future behavior and because it develops a roadmap of what is possible and what is within us and what was expressed in our childhood was naive and that must be a part of who we are now unfortunately experiences create comfort. So if you're going to gr- uh, b- grow up in an abusive home, you're going to be comforted by an abusive relationship because you're familiar with it. Now, unfortunately, these patterns carry forward in our life and we go, oh, well, I've always been a codependent person. I've always been abused. That's what I'm used to. I don't understand why I've had so many abusive relationships because we give too much weight to our childhood experiences and don't evolve from them looking for what's called boundaries, what I can do and what I can't do, what I will do and what I won't. You know, I did that in my childhood. I don't think I need to do that now. That happened to me then. I don't think I need to have that now. That's called boundaries. Common emotions in our culture, happiness, anger, sadness, fear are common emotions. And what you have to understand is, you know, the traditional theory of emotional understanding, emotional maturity, emotional IQ is the ability to truly identify the emotions that are affecting us rather than just go to anger and happy. You know, anger and happy are great, but they don't really offer us what peace does. Peace means I can go to any emotion. Peace means I'm able to identify when I'm frustrated instead of go to anger, when I'm when I feel betrayed, when I feel misunderstood, when I feel like I'm not heard. Now I can go to those emotions rather than go to anger. Or if I'm going to go to happy, yes, I'm really enjoying this, but I'm not laughing, but I'm really having a good time. So maybe there's some joy in the experience, but it's not all the way happy. We, being such impatient people, want to label our experiences as much as possible. And we also love to do the nonverbals, which is our facial expressions, which is the context. And the truth is, many people, yes, you can read their contextual uh, facial expressions, but it's unfair to judge them based on it. You need to check and say, are you upset? How are you doing? What's going on here? I can see that your face is not consistent with your attitude. You know, your attitude can be your greatest handicap. So as we look at the collective unconscious, yes, we do need to consider the meta communication, which is the nonverbal, but we don't need to land on it until we confirm it. And people love to make judgment based on nonverbals because I can read the crystal ball and tell you exactly what you are. I've met you. I've known you for 40 years. I can tell you exactly what you're thinking. You know, that's a ball of crap. If you want to dig yourself into a bad relationship, that's a great way to do it. That's our show. I want to thank everybody for listening. I love hearing from you. And you can do that on our webpage at voiceamerica.com, the empowerment and health and wellness channels, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Now, remember, Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in your fruit salad. Also, a fool knows 
The point to understand, not to know, but to understand. Also, to choose fries or salad sums up every adult decision. Also, the man who says his wife can't take a joke forgets that she took him. That's Oscar Wilde. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 